Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. A little sunshine for now, and depending on your area, rain could be on the way. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, how an Atlanta ICU nurse started her own COVID-19 preparedness business. I say to myself, when I get out of here, and I make it out of here, that. I would do everything in my power to make sure other people don't go through what I went through as a patient and a healthcare worker. That conversation in just a moment. But first this, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams were among officials announcing a new mega COVID-19 testing site. It's located near Hartsville-Jackson International Airport. We now have over 170 testing sites open across our state. And we've added nearly 20,000 tests to our daily capacity since July 1st. As we've added the new capacity, our positivity rate across the state and in many former hotspots is now declining. I'm grateful to all our partners in the private sector, in healthcare, and across all levels of government who have been working around the clock to make this possible. But to ensure a healthy Georgia, We cannot stop here. Right here in Clayton County, we're seeing one of the highest positivity rates in the state at around 20%. That is unacceptable, and that is why today is so important. Now, at this morning's press conference, Governor Kemp also cited declining active COVID-19 hospital rates to below 3,000. The governor says that's a 10% drop in 10 days. Now, this comes as the United States is surpassing the 5 million mark for coronavirus cases. Georgia is one of five states that make up 40 percent of all the U.S. infections. That information coming from Johns Hopkins University. And here locally, the Georgia State Department of Public Health is reporting there are more than 216,000 confirmed cases right here in the state. More than 3,000 new cases were reported on Sunday alone, and over 4,000 Georgians have died from COVID-19. Now, in related news, students at North Paulding High School will have virtual learning today and tomorrow. Why? Well, This is to give school officials time to deep clean and disinfect the campus. School officials say six students and three staff members tested positive for COVID-19. You may recall recently the school made national headlines just last week after photos surfaced on social media showing hallways crowded with students not wearing masks. And meanwhile, APS will resume its meal distribution program this week. The school district will provide five days worth of breakfast and lunch That's 10 meals total to children today and on August 24th, the school district's first day of school. Now, meals can be picked up from 3 to 6 p.m. at one of 12 locations. And finally, tomorrow is Election Day for some Georgia counties. Georgians can vote in runoff and special runoff elections for local and state offices. 
And of course, you must report to your assigned polling place to cast a ballot. By the way, to find your assigned polling location, just head to the Georgia Secretary of State's My Voter page. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia, as you know, was one of the first states to reopen for business during this COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, it was a decision that was heavily criticized. Still, the governor and state officials are still encouraging local businesses to commit to the Georgia safety promise. What is that? Well, that's a campaign to encourage business owners to follow guidelines and best practices from the governor's office and the Georgia Department of Public Health. According to the governor's office, so far, more than 740 businesses have made the pledge. But is this enough? And what should business owners consider before opening their doors or reopening their doors? Well, there's one new local business owner who wants to help. And for her business, well, yes, there's a backstory. Joining me now to talk more about it is Rachelle Dumas. She's the CEO and founder of Onward Healthcare Solutions and Education. Rochelle, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Let's begin with this because you are a registered nurse. You've worked as a healthcare worker in Georgia and New York during this pandemic. What has this been like for you? Give me your personal reflections through all of this. Well, um, it's been like any other time in my career, I can say that. It has definitely been a humbling yet traumatic experience working as a nurse during this pandemic. Going to New York um, as a travel nurse, I went up there specifically to help out with the pandemic. As you know, New York at the time, uh, COVID initially came to the United States and the numbers were high there. Mm -hmm. I packed my bags. um, I signed the contract with the travel agency I was with and I went to New York all in a matter of a week and a half. And that was early April and March that I went up there. So the numbers were very high. The ICUs were oversaturated, and I went up there to be a COVID unit ICU nurse. And by the time I got to the hospital, that it was almost the entire hospital that was full of COVID patients. Mm-hmm. Um, our usual ratio for ICU patients, especially if they're critical, are usually two patients to one nurse, and even one if they're critical enough. When I was up there, it was four to five patients, and they were critical. These patients were dying. Um, it was COVID was COVID-19 was in its infancy as far as treatment and research because it, it's a novel uh, virus. So we were trying everything that we knew. We was putting out all the stops for treatment, any new treatment that um, other hospitals or doctors found successful. We were trying. We did our best to save these patients. Some of it worked. Some of it didn't. Um, And then at the same time, we had issues with supplies, as everybody knows. There were mass shortages, cleaning supplies, and disinfectant shortages. And unfortunately, I think as a result of that, um, I was eventually diagnosed with COVID. I became very sick. I wasn't admitted into the ICU, thank God, but I did have some emergency department visits. And I ended up having to be stuck in a hotel by myself depending on the grace of my supervisor and my coworkers in New York to help get me through that time. And Mm -hmm. it was very rough, Rose. And um, I'm forever grateful for the experience, but it was, it was rough. You saw death 
I mean, you're you're a registered that, nurse. You've seen death before. What was yes. different about this moment for you as it relates to being in this environment, in your work environment, but seeing this much death? So just a little background. I originally started my healthcare uh, career and even nursing career at a level one trauma center, Grady Memorial Hospital, which I, I love so much. They do. I would go back anytime. So I was used to death. You know, it's a trauma hospital. It comes with a job. I'm an ICU nurse. So I went up there thinking, you know, I can handle this. <laughs> you know, I, I'm used to it. Mm-hmm. When I got there, it was the biggest reality check I've ever had. It There was literally nothing that could brace me for the amount of death. It was so fast. It was so quick. And I'm used to saying, okay, this is what this patient came in with. This is the usual treatment. We do these things. Of course, it can always go south, mm-hmm. but we save so many lives at Grady. We um, we know, we've seen the worst of the worst, and we've gotten used to the worst of the worst, so we know how to treat them, and we know how to save them. But I was in New York doing everything I could possibly do, and it still didn't work. And nothing could brace me for that. It, it took a toll on me mentally for a long time, and even now, mm-hmm. but... I say to myself, when I get out of here and I, and I make it out of here, that I will do everything in my power to make sure other people don't go through what I went through as a patient and a healthcare worker. You mentioned the mental toll. How did you, mm-hmm. how did you cope with that? You mentioned your coworkers up there and your, your supervisor. I imagine that helps you get through that because not only what you had seen or experienced as a ICU nurse, but now you, at that time, contracted the virus yourself. Did you think, Rochelle, that maybe there's a chance I might not make it out of this? Oh, yes. <laughs> and um, that's what caused, like, the anxiety. You know, so doing my research with COVID, especially being up there and, you know, being involved with it, um, I knew that there were multiple strains. And... I went up there, like I said, I was an ICU nurse up there. So, of course, we got the worst strains. A lot of our patients were dying. A lot of our patients were dependent on the ventilator. We couldn't wing them all. So, I know I was in a room <laughs> with a patient with the worst strain. That's what I was there for. So, in my mind, I had the worst strain. And I knew it was a matter of time before, you know, I was on the ventilator and I was in the ICU and you know, I was FaceTiming my family for the last time. And I, you know, every day I talk to my friends, they call me every day, every day I talk to my husband, um, talk to my family, and they were checking on me. It, it, matter of fact, it wasn't every day, it was like more like every hour, because I was literally up there by myself. My coworkers were calling and checking on me. They're coming in, we'll just bring our PPE and just take care of you. Um, so in my mind, every day, it was like a mental toll because I thought that I would be in the ICU fighting for my life. Wow. So you made it out. We're all happy about that. And you come <laughs> back to Atlanta. And when did you make the decision that, you know what, I'm going to take this experience or maybe it's something you've been wanting to do, but now you're going to start your own business so tell us about how the idea for Onward Healthcare Solutions came about. 
Yeah, so like I said, in those very rough moments, um, and even in the good ones where um, my patients did survive, I promised myself that, you know, I would continue to work in some sort of capacity where I am flattening the curve, where I am helping other people not be in a situation I'm in. And whether that's healthcare workers or patients, um, I just didn't want them to go through what I went through. You know, it, it, it took a, and it's still taking some time for me to kind of um, work on myself mentally to get to a space where I feel kind of normal again. Mm-hmm. But in doing that, um, when I got back, I was talking to a really great friend of mine who is now my mentor. Um, he owns several businesses, both in healthcare and out of healthcare. And he's trying to, trying to retire, which I hate it, <laughs> but he um, was telling me that a lot of, of the surgical centers that he is working with have reached out to him regarding helping um, with infection control programs, with um, whatever they need to do to um, be prepared for COVID. And hmm. he reached out to me after I came back to New York and said, you know, I know you'll be a great fit. You have infection control background. You have firsthand experience with COVID. Um, you know how to do infection control surveillance. You're organized. Um, and you had COVID, so it's personal. So I really believe that you should be that person to start that business, help different businesses and facilities be more prepared for COVID, to prevent outbreaks there, to um, make their um, ensure their uh, employees feel safe so they don't have to go through the things that you went through. So and it's like a... Off. It's like a COVID-19 preparedness business, in a sense? Yeah. So um, I have uh, COVID-19 preparedness programs where I write policy and procedures for businesses um, regarding COVID, um, just COVID-related issues like um, exposure, what to do when somebody becomes exposed, when to call out for work, um, essential and non-essential visitor management. It's a whole list of COVID policies and procedures that I offer. I I also do employee education. I found, um, I also work a telehealth job where I work on a COVID hotline answering questions about COVID. And I realized there is a big lack of education Mm -hmm. um, with the general public and even doctors call me. Really? Um, Business owners call me. Hey, my, uh, I have an employee that was around somebody who was around somebody who had COVID. (laughs) Should I let them come to work? You know, it's a lot of education that needs to be had. So I offer employee education on hand hygiene, signs and symptoms, when to call off for work. Um, And I also do facility walkthroughs where I have a checklist based on CDC recommendations, Mm -hmm. OSHA recommendations, and different governing body recommendations to see if that business is compliant. So let me ask you this. You're a health specialist. Who do you follow? Do you follow CDC guidelines? Do you follow state Department of Public Health? Lately, there have been some conflicting guidelines. So it depends on the business, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if I'm working with a surgical center, um, there's also quad ASF, which is like a regulatory body that says, okay, you're safe to keep practicing as a surgical center and they um, recommend that you follow CDC guidelines. So I take my checklist with all those guidelines on it and I make sure those are up to par. Mm -hmm. Um, So say we have like a school reopening Mm -hmm. Um, for them. We use um, CDC guidelines, but they also recommend local um, 
keeping up with your local and state requirements regarding um, how many people can congregate and all that. Mm -hmm. So we take all of those, we have meetings with their administrator and say, okay, these are the laws. Uh, this is what's going on right now. Is it even safe to open? This is what we should do. So we review all of that. Is there a common, I'm gonna call it a mistake because I think a lot of folks are learning how to navigate through this, but is there a common safety procedure that businesses either omit that you are always sort of reinforcing? Yes. Yeah, so I always tend to go back to, okay, what is going on right now? Because it is a novel virus, right? Mm -hmm. It's still a lot of research um, that's going on and different changes, changes are happening every day regarding, you know, what are the newest recommendations or standards that we should follow to, mm -hmm. you know, be a safe opening practice. So I always have to reiterate that we need somebody, well, you guys need somebody in your business, in your facility, keeping up with these things because they change so frequently because it's so new to us. So having so someone you, who's actually on the COVID-19 watch. With um, different businesses have like a lot of oversaturation of different roles. Um, if they don't, if they do have somebody like HR or um, somebody who can do the research, I offer them to do that if they have trouble hiring somebody. But a lot of businesses have actually moved to hiring somebody specifically to keep up with the research for that, and which I think is a great idea because not only can they keep up with the research, but then they can implement the new evidence-based practices that they found. Mm. Since none of us know when we're going to come out of this, what's been your takeaway throughout all of this? where we go as a society after this pandemic, if we ever get over it. Right. Um, I think based on just research that I've done, it in a lot of ways mimicked um, when the influenza uh, pandemic happened in the 1920s, mm -hmm. um, as far as, well, initially it was way more deaths with the influenza pandemic, but as far as the, the spiking, in cases after a while of reopening too soon. Um, I will say that history repeats itself, you know, if we don't get it right. Um, but I think we're going to have to look forward to a new normal. Mm -hmm. Granted, I think we should be patient at the same time. Um, as we've seen, we're at, I want to say 100, over 170 cases of COVID right now. Um, you mean, uh, you mean, you mean deaths or what do you mean in the nation? Well, and I was looking on the Department of Health in Georgia and uh, just a number of COVID cases. Oh, yeah. It's over 170,000, I think. Yeah, 70,000. So I think we need to practice a little patience and do more research and don't be so quick, especially with school reopenings, to open prematurely. Um I've talked to several people in different schools. I have friends who are teachers, counselors in different schools, and there's no true plan to reopen. Yet we're pushing to hurry up and reopen and put these kids in school, yet social distancing measures are, um, you know, in place. And, you know, the communication with parents and guardians and staff isn't there. Um, there's no real education, but yet we're trying to bring these children back or reopen these business prematurely. So I think at least we need to have like a preparedness program to at least try our best to not allow COVID to breach the walls of these businesses and to do our best with reopening slowly. 
Rachel, let me ask you this. Is there a type of business that you think probably should not be open right now through your lens? Mm -hmm. So I think I still think we should go back to the phase one of only the essential businesses should be open. Um, Bars, strip clubs, things of that nature. It's not essential right now because of the spike. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying that because we're having a spike. we should just hold off on those things, um, at least until we have, and I have seen some restaurants um, and done walkthroughs through some restaurants where they have uh, social distancing measures in place. They have policies, they have put up partitions and that, you know, that's okay, but it's not enough, mm-hmm. not enough restaurants who have implemented these things to safely open. Still having a spray, a high, a spike. Mm-hmm. Let me ask yes. you, have you had, folks who doubted the severity of this pandemic or some who say it's a conspiracy i mean there are folks out there some said it's a hoax it's not as serious as they want you to think it is whomever they want the they to be you've had these conversations with people yes so many times so um mostly on facebook um, (laughs) stay off facebook (laughs) (laughs) because i was I, I didn't get on it for a long time while I was in New York, but when I got sick and I was like, oh my God, I need something to do, Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, <laughs> you know, and during the moments where I wasn't like super sick, but, and I had my good days of sickness, so to speak, uh, I get on there and I'm like, I really have this <laughs> right now. And I'm like, I'm really suffering. And then I look on my newsfeed and and I see, like you said, COVID is a hoax. It's not real. I don't know anybody who have it. And, wow. you know, just like I'm from New Orleans, Katrina here in 2005, and I, I went through it mm. emotionally. And so did a lot of people who were affected. But there were so many other people who, like, made fun of us during that time and called us names and, you know, People, and I say that to say that people don't get it unless it hits home, mm-hmm. unless it's personal, unless it's their mom fighting or their their daughter or their friend. If you don't really, like, have a firsthand view of it, like, people really believe it's not happening. You've experienced two traumatic events in your life. I have. I have. Hmm. Definitely have. But I had to give those people grace. You know what I'm saying? I, I get it. Um, I feel like some of it is a little immaturity um, as far as saying, oh, it doesn't exist, you know. But I also feel like, like I said, people just have to experience it for them to believe it's real. I've, I've known somebody personally who didn't believe it was real and then got sick and then changed their story completely. So, mm. you know, I, I've seen mm. that and I get it. What is your vision for Onward Healthcare Solutions right now? Business is pretty good, but yes. because you're focusing on the pandemic, when we get to the other side, whenever that is, you want to continue with education, educating business just in general about health and wellness and sanitation? Yes, I, I do. I want to continue um, making sure people are starting businesses the correct way as far as like um, having, you know, measures in place, um, keeping in mind COVID-19 is still going to be out there and it's going to be around us for a while, if not forever, just Mm -hmm. like the flu. Um, I want to 
make sure schools reopen safely. Um, I want to make sure established businesses reopen safely. I want to make sure that, like I said, we really do flatten the curve, that we bring back that slogan. Because it seemed that it disappeared. Um, but I really want um, to minimize the amount of people getting sick. Um, I want to minimize the, the oversaturation of ICUs and hospitals. And it all starts by, um, starts with outside of the hospital, you know, it mm. starts with that restaurant or that school, you know, our outbreak is a second away, especially with children um, yeah. or even people, you know, and I want to do all I can to, to minimize that and to help out. Rachel, you're a registered nurse. Yes. Are you done or are you going to go back into the hospital environment, you think? Ooh, are you taking a break? Yeah. After Katrina, you know, I, I just never say never. You know, <laughs> you just don't know. In the short term, my short term, as well, my foreseeable future, I don't leave. I'm going to go back to the hospital um, because it was a very traumatic time for me. Um, but honestly, what if we have another pandemic? I, I can't lie. I'm going to be right on the front lines. That's what you enjoy doing. It is. It's my passion. And we appreciate you and thank you for your service to so many and glad that you, you are doing well. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Rachelle Dumas, a registered nurse and founder and CEO of Onward Healthcare Solutions and Education, helping businesses really understand the importance of being COVID-19 prepared. Rochelle, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story. Best of luck to you. Thank you so much, Rose, for having me and interviewing me today. I'm very humble for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Well, we thank you for sharing. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmond.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Our colleagues over at Marketplace have been a little busy. They're always busy, but this time, just a little bit extra. In fact, we're in the middle of a three-part episode series that's been airing Fridays at 1 p.m. It's called The Economy, What Now? And speaking of what now, joining me now is a very familiar voice, the host and senior editor of Marketplace Tech and the co-host of Make Me Smart with Kai and Molly, Molly Wood. Molly, thanks for taking the time and dropping in. I really appreciate it. Hey, Rose. Thanks for having me. I understand you are in your basement. <laughs> I am. I am in my basement, very professionally. <laughs> How is that studio life in the basement treating you these past months? I know. Well, I feel lucky, actually, because I um, already worked from home. I'm our Silicon Valley correspondent, our Bay Area mm -hmm. correspondent, and have been in the basement studio for a couple of years now. So other than having my child at home with me all the time, uh, it was not a huge adjustment. Really? Well, that's a good segue. I'm one of the lucky ones that way, though. 
<laughs> You're exactly right about that. That's a good segue because here we as a nation, we're at this intersection of a pandemic and the economy. And before we dive into the series that you all have been working on, I just want to get your reflection through your lens. What do you make of this extraordinary time we're in? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> this is like a moment where I try not to cry. I mean, it's a lot, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, a thing that, that I actually wrote for the end of the the special, the Pivot Point special, was that I think there's a reason that we're experiencing right now not only you know, a once in a century virus, a once in a century pandemic that's upended the entire world, the global economy and including our own, but also incredible social upheaval and change. I think those things almost had to go hand in hand. And hopefully the reason for that is that we come through this with a better sense of our own humanity and a better sense of of how to use the tools at our disposal, this incredible American innovation engine, the incredible economy that we have, the the tech industry, the internet, the people, to make it more fair and make it more equitable for everybody. We've been hearing so much of this, oh, the pandemic has exposed or amplified all of the inequities and disparities that existed. But for a lot of folks, we've known they've they've been out there. And when it comes to the economy, and and analysts are all saying this, but I'm curious, you know, what do you make of that? Because it's like it took a pandemic for y'all to finally acknowledge and maybe have a reckoning of what's been happening for not just decades, but centuries. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And and look, I'm not trying to be dark. I don't think we should assume the reckoning is done. Right. It's still an ongoing conversation. There is still convincing that's happening, which seems unfathomable. But I think, you know, we just we just actually did an episode of um, Make Me Smart, the podcast that I do for Marketplace on wealth inequality. Mm -hmm. And we talked about how all throughout history, when wealth inequality in a society reaches a certain point, there is always upheaval. And that upheaval manifests in different ways. Sometimes it's a dictatorship and authoritarianism and it's sometimes it's a revolution like we saw in the French Revolution mm-hmm. sometimes it's it's an uprising by citizens and sometimes like we had in the United States during the gilded age it is sincerely reform it's mm-hmm. massive changes to how government works that make things more fair for everybody but the message is the same that that at no point throughout history have we reached the level of inequality that we're at now Mm-hmm. whether it's racial or economic, and, and frankly, we know that it's both, um, without some kind of massive change. It's just that, you know, when people have money and power, they don't like to give it up. I'm glad We're you getting said- deep. We've gone deep, bros. I know. You know, and, and see, you see when I say that, I'll get an email from... <laughs> get an email from <laughs> Look at Rose Scott and her slanted, leaning, you know, commentary. Um, but let's... Right, uh, of course. <laughs> exactly. I'll say it. I'll say it. <laughs> And I'll go, I concur. Uh, but let's give our Point listeners... Point me wherever you want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's give our listeners a little bit of insight into the episodes. We always speak with economists and analysts. Often they're on point. For this series, who are you all speaking with? In this series, you know, we, we really tried to talk to a range of people. Of course, we talked to economists. We talked to educators. Uh, we talked to technologists. We talked to actually an incredible roboticist who's in Georgia, Um and we talked to a, a biotech investor who wrote a book about how you just have to think really crazy sometimes if you want to solve 
gigantic problems. Mm -hmm. And then honestly, my favorite part of this series is that we just talked to a whole bunch of real people. Mostly about because a big part of the series is how we couldn't do any of the things that we're doing in terms of responding to this pandemic without the Internet. That ultimately, at the end of the day, the Internet is the essential service. And we were lucky enough to have listeners either email us or in one case, call us on a flip phone. This, you know, woman who's retired, who lives in Minnesota, who has no Internet access at home. Um, and some of the stories were just heartbreaking. I mean, you you have children calling us and saying, I'm trying to learn, but the, you know, the local, the provider, the internet provider who's in my area, their infrastructure ends a block from my house. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I have to drive to the library to try to get internet access, but it's closed. And those, I mean, always, and I think you know this, we're journalists, the best stories come from the people who are living it. Absolutely. That's why we do this program. I am particularly curious and interested in the reimagining the economy part of this three-part. Yeah, I mean, I think a through line for almost every story that I've been involved in in the last, let's say, let's say minimum five years, but probably the entire 20-something years I've been doing this job, and certainly all the economic stories we tell, at some point recently, it seemed like they all had the same message. And that message was, is this economy working for everybody? Mm -hmm. Are the tech innovations that I cover on my show every day being evenly distributed? There's a famous saying by the writer William Gibson, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And that's become a foundation for a ton of the reporting that I do. And it's, you know, the pandemic is laying that bare, but so did the 2016 election. So did the financial crisis of 2008. And I think it's sort of inescapable to people that it's time to have a real conversation about who's benefiting and who's not, and what are the consequences of that, and how long can it go on? When we talk about this gap, whether it's a, the digital divide or whether it's the, the wealth gap or you know income inequality, by the way, Atlanta for the last few years has been this, quote, capital of income inequality, a city like Atlanta often people think, oh, this is just maybe a big urban metropolis problem. But this, you mentioned the the person in Minnesota or, you know, this is an everybody problem. This pandemic is affecting everybody. And the inequities that are being exposed are from urban to small town to rural. Is that also a message you all really want to get out with this series? Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I think that I, you know, I grew up in Montana and North Dakota. Mm-hmm. I've been in California for 20 years, but my family's all still in the middle of the country. I just did an interview uh, with a public radio station in the middle of the country. We talked about rural Missouri, rural Kansas, the digital divide, and the economic divide. I mean, there's just no question that people have been left behind in all kinds of different ways, and geography is a huge part of that, whether it comes to internet access or job opportunity. I mean, I'm in here in the Bay Area, which is one of the most expensive areas of the entire country. And all of a sudden, all of these tech companies are saying, oh, you don't have to live here to do these jobs. The Mm -hmm. pandemic has made that somewhat clear. Mm -hmm. And so what are the opportunities of that? How do we export the ability to take these jobs to the rest of the country where the economy basically vanished in all kinds of cities and towns across America? 
We're definitely looking forward to that. By the way, I'm from St. Louis, so, you know. <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm all right. A, I'm a Midwest uh, <laughs> girl, always will be, you know. Yep. Um, and we do have the best barbecue, so uh, don't let those folks in Kansas City tell you anything different. The series called I'm not the looking into that one. <laughs> You're very smart, Molly. Uh, the series is the economy. What now? You've been probably listening to the first two episodes. Um, the next one is Friday, right here on WABE at 1 p.m. By the way, Molly, we are lending you all our closer look time slot for now, but that's okay. Molly Wood is the host and senior editor of Marketplace Tech and the co-host of Make Me Smart with Kai. Molly, thank you so much for dropping in on Closer Look. I really appreciate it. Rose, thanks for the time and for loaning me your time. I'm I'm grateful. Take good care. All right. We look forward to having you back, too. Love to. And speaking of Marketplace Tech, hey, it's next. Drums, please. It's an all-time summer classic. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Well, summertime is coming to a close. And for many kids, this year's summer break was like no other. Normally, summer camps are in full swing, and that includes Wilderness Works. This is the only program that I know of that offers a 20-hour service to these kids to keep them off of the streets of Atlanta, to keep them safe to keep them fed, to keep them building friendships. Instead of being home, playing on your phone, playing Fortnite or whatever, you come here and you engage with others, you play in a game room. We play basketball, <laughs> football, sky zone. Field trips to museums. Hiking, Stone Mountain. I remember one time they brought in reptiles, they brought in some snakes, some lizards. We have family here, so most of our kids grow up with each other and become lifelong friends. Well, camps like Wilderness Works, day camps, overnight camps across the state and even throughout the nation, unfortunately have either had to shut down or try to operate with some social distancing measures in place. Joining me now to discuss what it's been like at Wilderness Works is Ebony Martin. She's the director of programs. Now, if you're wondering, well, what's Wilderness Works? We're going to find out in just a moment. Ebony Martin, welcome to the program. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And you are talking to an old camp counselor, an old <laughs> camper, so I'm going to enjoy this segment. For our listeners that may not be familiar with Wilderness Works, you touched on a little bit in that clip from your website, but give the backstory here of Wilderness Works and how it came about. Well, Wilderness Works actually started like 24 years ago. Our founder, Bill Michler, he started out in Macon and took a group of boys, predominantly black boys, and introduced them to outdoors, nature, which a lot of our kids are not accustomed to. And then when he came to Atlanta in 96, I believe, he started a program here at the old Emmanuel Baptist Church. We have to say historic now because it was founded in 1902. Mm -hmm. So it used to have a Bible college. So instead of him going to the neighborhoods and knocking on the doors early in the morning, he decided to allow the kids to come over um, on a Friday night and stay the night 
instead of having to wake him up because a lot of parents didn't get up on Saturday morning. And then he started the program and it's a 20 hour program. It's for at risk and homeless kids. Although we do have kids that are kids of probably some of the teachers or some of the boys and girls club staff. But our main focus is at risk and homeless kids. So they come and spend the night with us. They play games. We introduce them to ecology, nature, nutrition, their heritage, and then they stay the night. We have two separate dorms, a girl's dorm and a boy's dorm. Um, we have uh, Georgia Tech and Georgia State and uh, Spelman College students that are background check that come in and volunteer with the kids. And then we'll wake up in the morning. We'll actually do a, a activity. That's our field trip day. Mm-hmm. So we like you, like you said, we'll hike Stone Mountain. We'll go bike riding on the Beltline. We'll do Sky Zone. So we kind of give the kids a safe alternative mm-hmm. on the weekend because that's a time where they're, you know, subjected to drugs, sure. to neglect, to violence, to just being out. When you be out, you idle, you tend to get into things. So let me ask you this, Ebony, how many youth do you all typically have in a summer that participate in the program? So on a weekend, we'll have 50 kids. And see, our weekends vary. So like the second weekend of the month, we'll have all girl, all middle school girls. So we'll have between 15 and 20 middle school girls. On the third weekend of the month, we'll have eight to 11. So that's third, fourth and fifth graders. So that's our biggest crowd. We'll have at least 50 of those. And then on the fourth weekend of the month, we'll have middle school boys. So it's about 20 to 25 boys. Mm-hmm. And then during the summer, we'll take 60 to 65 kids to camp per week. Wow. Let me ask you, Ebony, what drew you to this program? How'd you get involved with it? Well, I used to be a social worker at Salvation Army Red Shield. Mm -hmm. And so I've been in the nonprofit for a while. And those kids used to build, Mr. Bill, who was the founder, used to bring kids, some of our kids from Salvation Army over to here. So I used to be the one to actually drop them off. But I didn't know much about the program. I just knew it was a program that when the kids came back, they was like, oh, Miss Ebony, we did this and we did that. Oh, <laughs> and then we did this now. Oh, I can't wait to go back. So I'm like, well, what, 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 what's this? So then I started to get more educated about it. And me and Mr. Bill sat down and I'm like, this is where I want to be, you know, especially to see the impact that it had on the kids and, you know, how they just to get out of this, the shelter for a minute, which is almost like a prison to get out and be amongst kids and just let go because a lot of them don't have friends in in the school system because they have to be cool or they have to dress a certain way. Here, you know, it's a judgment-free zone. You can, you know, be you. For those youth who are in a homeless shelter program, uh, I imagine they're moving around a lot too, so they can't really stay in one place and, and make friends. And what we do extend to those parents that are in a shelter or, or transitioning, once you get an apartment, we can bridge that gap for your kid to still participate. So, Ebony, like so many other, you know, summer programs, this summer has been like no other. Uh, how have you all managed to try to at least provide some of these fun activities for the youth? I mean, given the pandemic that we're in. Good question. What we had to do is we had to shift from 
our overnight programming and our summer camp programming to a family initiative, relief initiative, where we started to uh, provide food for those families that, you know, were unable to get to the schools for due to transportation problems or that it wasn't enough food being that sometimes the the school system only provides for the school age children mm -hmm. and not necessarily the babies that are, you know, in the household as well. So we got together with um, Passion City Church and also Renew Atlanta, who has a food bank. And we just went there and picked up loads and loads of food. And then we just started distributing food that way along with Kroger gift cards. And then we end up doing a day camp. So a day camp ran from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. And in that day camp, we followed all the CDC guidelines. We had under 10 kids. We provided um, face masks um, because a lot of parents couldn't afford it. Uh, or they had an uh, improper face mask. Like you had an adult mask that was all over the face of the child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we got kid masks. We had uh, hand washing stations. So, you know, the kids just for that five hours, they were like in heaven. They were so excited and oh, I can't wait to come back in the morning just to get out the house. Have you all thought about moving forward? Do we need to change how we're going to try to do this next year in terms of the, the summer programs? And what, you know, what's your takeaway from all of this and what you all might need to do? Because you want kids to, to be a part of the program. Obviously, based on what we heard, they have a lot of fun. Really, it's so hard to tell what to do mm -hmm. because the instruction that we're given changes daily. Mm -hmm. One minute, yes, you can. The next minute, no, you can't. So the best we can do as of now is to plan accordingly to however the APS school system is going, however the CDC is going. But at the end of the day, we safety is first for mm -hmm. us and for the kids so i really want them to get into a some kind of routine or some kind of comfortable level with the school first mm -hmm. before worrying about the camp part but we also will be providing still providing food because you're going to need food regardless mm -hmm. i don't think that's going to that's constant um but we're going to try to figure out how we can slide in some kind of camp so they can have an outlet after school or yeah because you, you all know. provide year-round programs correct correct what have you heard from the kids and and i imagine there was some disappointment this summer but are you hearing from the youth and the kids saying hey miss ebony when can we yes. come back yes like we miss you uh can we just come for an hour Aww. can we you know <laughs> they are they text, they call, they Zoom, anything like, can you show us the game room on your phone? Like just to remind them of being here or how's my friend doing? Because they are out of touch with a lot of their friends. Mm -hmm. It's challenging and, and it kind of pulls at your heart because nobody planned for this. Yeah, you know that, that is true. Nobody planned for it. Uh, Ebony, from a financial standpoint, you're a nonprofit and uh, you all operate on a small budget i imagine definitely the pandemic has for nonprofits. i think a lot of nonprofits who get donations in are, are are taking the biggest hit you know if not just their whole program is going under we're trying not to face that and i come in every day knowing 
that finances are, you know, hard, but they say, you know, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. So, and that's how I feel like it, I do it for them and I'm going to continue to do it. And that's why we have to go fund me. We are keeping our head above water. It's, it's trying times. And there are people that are given and, and, you know, we're so graciously thankful for that. And we just give back to those who need it more. Ebony Martin is the director of programs at Wilderness Works. Ebony, thank you for what you all do for the children and youth of Atlanta. It's a wonderful program. Uh, I love the outdoors, so I understand what that's like. Thank you. Thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And and we hopefully, once everything gets back on track, hopefully you come out to volunteer. And since you're a camp lady, <laughs> volunteer some of your time and, you know, go walking with the kids and hopefully see you around someday. Let me know. I got tons of camp songs, although they probably think they're corny because, you know, but no, I, I love it. Just let me know. Yes, just let me know. We can make bug juice and all that good stuff. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ebony. Thank you for having me. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.